From Al's Toy Barn, it's the IGN DigiGuys. Please welcome two guys whose defeat will be Zerg's greatest triumph, Wade Major and Mark Kaiser. So, uh, Mark. Yes. Am I getting an audio out of you? I don't know. Are there we you? go. Now you I'm tell, getting You tell me. Yeah, this stuff was fritzing around a little bit earlier. Uh, two words. Roger Ebert. I know. That was sad. You know, our... our Roger. And this is, this is what happens, obviously, when we uh, pre-record shows a little bit early. We literally missed Roger Ebert's death on, on the last show by like a day of pre-recording. So it, uh, it came off as being unbelievably not timely. So um, we now have an opportunity to discuss the man who is sort of the single most legendary figure of our craft. And, and, uh, and I believe that is a well-deserved accolade. You know, it's interesting. Only two film critics have ever won the Pulitzer for criticism. Wade Major. No. Uh, highly unlikely that will, <laughs> that will ever happen. Awesome. You have to work for a publication that actually submits you and, you know, kind of gets behind you and pushes the buttons. But, um, no, Roger Ebert was the first, and our good friend Joe Morgenstern was the uh, the second and so far the only other one. So Joe is now the only living film critic and probably will be the last film critic ever to receive a Pulitzer for film criticism because the c- profession will not exist in five years. I don't know, man. I disagree. I believe that uh, that uh, Dude Lover 609... The guy who posts on um, on Rotten Tomatoes, yeah, that guy totally rocks, yeah. And the way he his like his opinions are all cool and stuff and junk, yeah. I think that guy is totally like just way totally cool. He will win the Pulitzer, P O O. He will he will win the Pulitzer surprise. Yeah, I remember uh, producing Roger Ebert on a, on a talk show that I did like in the mid nineties. Yeah, and you know when he walks in the room and you talk to him. You felt like because my job is to brief the talent on yeah. the, the was is to brief the guest on their appearance and what they're going to talk about and whatnot. And when you sat down with him, it was almost like he was sitting down with a filmmaker. I mean, he yeah. had that his opinion at that time, before and after, was so definitive. Yeah, and you wanted to know what he thought of whatever I asked him about because you wanted to know what the definitive voice of film criticism thought about a movie. And you know what was always and whatever a- you thought, by the way, was wrong because whatever True. he said was right. He, and and of course, you know, we all agreed with him sometimes and disagreed with him at other times. Uh, but he was always sort of, you know, he was the archetypal film critic for so many people. Partly, I think, because he was not a coastal guy. He was not a New York sophisticate or a Hollywood insider. He was a Midwesterner. He's a guy from Chicago. And yes, you know, everybody makes fun of the fact that, you know, he, he worked with Russ Meyer. He, uh, he, that he had, you know, he dabbled as a screenwriter in the, in the schlock generation. Uh, but nonetheless, he was an outsider. He was completely an outsider to Hollywood. And he was a really old-fashioned Chicago newspaper guy. And, uh, you know, the kind they don't make anymore. I mean, they broke the mold on that. But it was always interesting at the Cannes Film Festival to see when he would moderate before the, the cancer took him. He used to moderate the uh, American Independence at Cannes panel, which, you know, for those who know the Cannes Film Festival, they have these pavilions. They're these kind of uh, tent cities that they set up in the uh, around the Palais, which is, you know, it has a big plaza, a big campus area around the Palais where films screen. And in, the, in that walking plaza area that's right by the beach, they create these little tent cities. And there's the British Pavilion and the American Pavilion. And they're, they're you know, more than tent cities. They're, they're the, they're, it's just a nice place where journalists from various countries can go and hang out and grab something to drink and watch an NBA game by satellite, you know, 
know, if you're at the American Pavilion, stuff like that. And one of the events that was that's hosted every year at the American Pavilion is the American Independence at Cannes, where they have all the, a panel of all the directors who have films in the various sections, the official section and, you know, Critics Week and uh, uh, Directors Fortnight and whatever it is. And um, they'll have a discussion about American independent film. And Roger Ebert used to moderate that that panel. And the amazing thing was that the most interesting thing about that panel was always Roger Ebert. Uh, you know, you could have you could have Kevin Smith on there. You could have Tarantino on there. Uh, you could, I mean, it didn't it didn't matter who the filmmaker was. You know, you would think these are superstar independent filmmakers and they're doing their thing and they're talking the talk and they're funny and they're quick. But somehow. The most interesting stuff was always Roger Ebert. And even though he asked the question and they answered, then he would sometimes come in with his own insights. And you're like, wow, you, you're actually a lot smarter than anybody else on this panel. Well, the thing, the thing that I loved about Roger and his, his writing especially is that his writing was very clean. And it was clean and deceptively simple. You know, True. And what, what people liked about him, he was almost like us plus – He's yeah. the regular guy, a regular Joe, yep. who just happened to have these great insights on film. Mm-hmm. And because he was a regular guy, you didn't think he was a film school guy, or he because he didn't go to film school, no. you know, or he was some rich guy up on a hill you know, proclaiming a film good or bad. Right? You know, he was just like a he had a certain Joe six pack, and believe me, it was a twelve pack with Roger. It wasn't just a six pack; <laughs> it was a twelve pack. But he had that sort of everyman appeal, and yet he yeah. was just like the average fan, just a little bit smarter, and 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 he he embraced that sort of every man's sense of his own identity. Well, he's a, he's, it's a huge loss for our, uh, for our profession, uh, especially at a time when film criticism really is kind of a, 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 an endangered species. I mean, it's uh, newspapers increasingly are laying off film critics, and, uh, you know, they, at, at uh, Movie City News, they had, they've had that list of, uh, you know, the last 121 or whatever is down to film critics in America. And, of course, I was one of the last on it. Now, uh, well, so much for me, you know, the box office uh, terminated me from that list. So. That's right. Um, so even though I'm still at NPR, but, you know, it, it, that was like, those are newspaper people and magazine people. And uh, it's really, it's pretty sad to see what's happened to official newspaper and print film criticism. And Roger Ebert's passing really does seem like that's, it brings it all home. Well, it, it, it does feel now, it does feel as if we've, we've crossed that threshold where now there's almost no hope yeah. for, yeah. you know, thoughtful, well-written, well-reasoned, well-argued Influential, culturally influential criticism anymore. Very true. Now there's still great. By the way, you know, do you, you remember in the early days of uh, of Lafka? When I mean early days, meaning that when I first joined, mm-hmm. there really there's like there's B there's B M. Yeah, before Mark. <laughs> yeah, that's the other B M. I was just gonna say. Mark, I'm just gonna say. I'm, I'm gonna AM save you on that one. After Mark. Yes. Uh, there was a uh, there was a resistance to let online only critics huge do numbers resistance. of Alaska. Huge resistance. And at the time I understood it because you know th- th- this was my joke about a typical online film review yeah. circa you know 2006. This is what it was. Um, let's say the movie was uh, Die Hard uh, Die Hard 3 whatever it right. was whatever it was that Die Hard was in 2006. Yeah. Um, this is my review of Die Hard 3. Um, when I was a boy, I had a teacher, and her name was Mrs. Crabapple. And Mrs. Crabapple was really a mean person, and I didn't like Mrs. Crabapple. And I remember once that I had to write a book report on A Catcher in the Rye, and I didn't want to do the book report because Mrs. Crabapple was mean, and she gave us a really early deadline. So I wrote, I re- read the book in like two seconds, and then I wrote a f- 
a book report, and I didn't like the book, and then I turned it in, and Mrs. Crabapple said to me, well, if you don't have anything nice to say, then don't say anything at all. And that brings me to Die Hard. It sucked. The end. And, like, that would be a review. I know. That would be an early online uh, it, review. It, it, you get into this whole thing about how, like, you know, you had to write your term paper, and yeah. no one gives a crap. Just re- you know, show you know you, about you, a film. You can write about a film. However. Yes. However. Yes. Now we're in 2013. Yes. Lots of great writing about film on the internet. There, well, in, I was going to say the, the funny thing now is that in Lafka, pretty much everyone in Lafka, their only outlet now is online. Yeah, it has to be. I, I mean, I mean, if you accept, uh, you know, Kenny who writes for the LA Times, and you accept Joe who writes for the Wall Street Journal. I mean, look, even, even Peter Rayner, Christian Science Monitor, online only. Right, so I mean, we, we, you start looking at the emeritus members around the room, and you know Leonard Malton, LeonardMalton.com. H.J. Park. There is no way the Korean Times is online. You're, it's got to be a paper you, paper. You got me. It's got to be a paper paper. <laughs> yeah, it is a paper paper. So what I'm and saying, and I'll go for Harriet too because that's her outlet as well. Is it really? Yeah. Didn't you know that? Uh, I'm sure her her Korean. I'm sure is great. It's hysterical. It's really outrageously funny. Harriet Harriet has a, has like a column in the Korean Times. I, I don't even know what's in it. All I know is it's it's Harriet's face and uh, and a bunch of Korean. So point being. <laughs> The point being, here's, here's what we've learned. B, a lot of great writing on the internet, right? I love reading, uh, I love reading the AV Club. Mm-hmm. I love reading Salon. Yeah, there's a lot of great writing on the internet. No doubt about it. Yep. Um, can't be denied. Uh, the other thing we took away from this is that uh, Roger Ebert's death is not only tragic for him and his family, but it's also tragic because we, we have crossed the Rubicon in terms, of our, uh, in terms of the culture valuing from uh, criticism. Absolutely. So, Roger, rest in peace. All right. Well, with that, we are uh, 10 minutes into the show, so we are going to move on to the thing that the show is about. We are going to we're going to do our very bestest to uh, squeeze in a uh, Vox box and to uh, squeeze in some listener mail. A lot of great listener mail has come in, and uh, you know, on top of everything else, I, as if we're not scheduled slammed enough, and me, of course, with uh, diaper changes and whatnot. Uh, Mark, I'm redoing my kitchen. Yeah, Mark's redoing his kitchen, and, and Mark was the one who was supposed to be on the Colcoa jury this year, and somehow, me, who's already been on it twice, I wound up on it, so on top of everything else, I've got, like, uh, there are 31 films. Mark, did you know that Colcoa has 31 films in competition, uh, which is an obscenely obnoxious number that's more than you even have to see at Cannes in two weeks? No, no, and- no. Why don't you tell people how long you have to see these movies? Well, I've seen eight already. So that means uh, the the what's thirty one minus twenty three. I have twenty three films to see in the next seven days. In on top of everything else that I have to do. Now, why don't you admit? I'm going to put yes. Yeah, some spot. of them I'm going to watch ten minutes of, and I'm going to go. This is a piece of crap. I will never vote for it, and I will move on. Yes, you have to. And the other thing is, if other members of the jury, and, and in fairness, this is kind of how it works. This is sort of a sort of an unwritten rule thing. But if if three other people on the jury. Uh, have already seen a film and say they're categorically not going to vote for it. What's the point? There's no point. Then I, then I don't have to watch it. So there are a few of those pending. There are probably about five or six films that look like they are receiving such low grades that, that we're, I'm just going to cross them right off. So, um, But it's a good jury this year. Uh, Jeannie and Lael. Jeannie's Lail. on it. Jeannie's on it. Lael, uh, I've been on the jury with Jeannie before. Lael is president of the jury. Lael, who used to write for Box Office as well. Lael Owenstein. By the Jeannie way. And then Justin from Variety. Oh, is that right? Yeah, Justin's on. I want to be on that jury. Do you really? I do. It'll be well. fun. And by the way, speaking of uh, film critics never get any print outlets anymore, I just want to say yeah. shout out to our friend Amy Nicholson because I was reading the LA Times the other day. I was going to say Chuck Wilson, by the way, is the last person on the jury. 
Oh, Chuck? Chuck's on. That's so. cool. Good. Yeah. So shout out to Amy Nicholson. Why? Because she got a piece she's in the LA Times? For the, no, she's writing for the LA Times now. Well, because Kenny Tran was one of her teachers in school. Well, I'm just saying. Yeah, I know. I mean, well, congratulations for her. I, I emailed her. I Facebooked her. That's very nice. And I said, congratulations, you yeah. know. Yeah. And she said she's lowest on the totem pole, but whatever. Yeah, that's, at least it, she's, she's on the totem she's pole. She's on the totem pole. That's right. Mm-hmm. So there is still hope. Mm-hmm. And when I say hope, I mean no hope. Well, yeah, I mean, it helps when uh, when Kenny was one of your teachers. You know, I mean, look, that's how it works. Uh, so anyway, we're going to – I guess Earth Day is coming up. I don't really know what day Earth Day is. Gives a crap. Uh, well, look, I, I can't track holidays. I don't even know what – look, when you have a baby, it's, I don't even know what month it is anymore. All I know is that a diaper needs to be changed. So uh, I, the only holidays I actually know the dates of, to be honest. Yes, Christmas. Uh, Christmas, New Year's, and Fourth of July, and two of those because the name of the, the holiday is the date. Babies. So uh, otherwise, if it's not one of those, I have no idea when it is. So I don't I don't know when Earth Day is. I don't even know if it's an official holiday. All I know is it's coming up, and we got a bunch of DVDs we got to mention uh, and, and talk briefly about it. Um, yes. So, uh, first one really has very little to do with the Earth Day, but I'm going to take advantage of the opportunity to. Uh, the, the title is kind of earthy, so I'm going to mention this because it's a really cool film. Uh, Over Your City's Grass Will Grow, which is um, an incredibly cool documentary by Ray Fine's sister, Sophie Fines. Who, uh, if a lot of people didn't know, is a very talented filmmaker and uh, and has been for quite some time. Um, she uh, she made a lovely, lovely documentary about Anselm Kiefer. Now, if you don't know who Anselm Kiefer is, he's um, he's an artist, and he's you know one of these artists who's just <sighs> he's he's born in Germany, right? And he does these. Uh, like installation art, right? It, but he's not like uh, Christo. Christo. He's not like Christo. Uh, you know, Christo does like he puts skirts around islands, and you know, he puts umbrellas <laughs> in the in the, uh, in, the, the in the in the grapevine. And, and, and then one of the umbrellas falls down and kills someone. It kills somebody. You know, I actually saw those umbrellas. By the way, I was I was <laughs> to digress onto a tangent. I was a PA on that uh, that horrible film, uh, The Legend of Wolf Mountain, that uh, Mickey Rooney film dreadful movie that they still never paid me for they owe me $250 for that film by the way 20 years ago and I'm still owed the $250 for my PA work so screw them and uh, I was on the LA unit I was a PA on the LA unit which is just ridiculous it was horrible most unprofessional thing ever and um, uh, I was I had the camera in the van and they gave me such bad directions for the location which was up near Magic Mountain that I actually missed the off ramp and I wound up in the grapevine and then I wound up and by the time I saw Christo's umbrellas I was like crap I'm going to be so late. They can't shoot. I, I have the camera. I'm, del- I'm literally delaying the shoot by like half an hour because once you're in the grapevine, you're stuck. You are stuck. You, you've got to drive like eight miles before there's another off-ramp that you can use to turn around and go that, back. That is correct. Anyway, so that's my story about Christo's damn umbrellas. Why are we not talking about defense? We're talking about – now we're going to talk about Over Your City's Grass Will Grow. So installation artist uh, Anselm Kiefer. It's really fascinating. He went to this silk f- uh, factory in the south of France. And uh, just started doing this just really cool kind of abstract construction and painting uh, thing. It's got like tunnels and towers, and it's just amazing. And it really is. It's just it's like it's just like this bizarre abstract vision that he makes real. And he's a gritty guy, and he just builds this stuff. And it just it's an incredible insight into a, a very bizarre yet uh, empowering kind of artistic vision. And, uh, you know, the, I'm going to take advantage of the fact that it's called Over Your City's Grass Will Grow and recommend this for Earth Day. It has very little to do with the Earth, but I think it's cool. I think it's cool. Uh, I think it's cool. Check L- it out. Listen to me. Yeah. You want to you check out something? What? You should, 
you should check out Dirty Energy. Oh, yeah. Now, Dirty go. Energy is, uh, is a terrific uh, little effort from um, a director named Mark R. Leeper. Now, this is all about the Deepwater Horizon oil spill, which, uh, like, totally just decimated the Louisiana Bayou. And the doc is not so much about the disaster, although, of course, that's in it, but it's really about how the disaster impacted um, all the fishermen and the locals in Louisiana. And the Deepwater uh, tragedy, it, it, it's like the biggest environmental disaster in U.S. history. Ugh. It killed like a dozen people. And I think the number was 200 million barrels of oil spilled right. into the ocean. Right. And, you know, stuff like that, you just realize that just people are Lame. Doomed. We're just doomed. Yeah. We're doomed as a people. But we can make some good movies along the way. <laughs> and this is one of them. Yeah. Dirty Energy. Uh, anyway, it's, it's certainly not high-polished stuff, but he, uh, he picked some good um, subjects to interview. Uh, there's a couple features on the uh, special features on the uh, DVD. So it's from Cinema Libre Studios. We all know what Cinema Libre is about, and uh, we do like them. So um, I would check out Dirty Energy. Uh, it's a bit of an activist uh, documentary as well. Uh, the idea that you know, uh, you know, the gas industry, the oil industry—they're all very politically tied in, and uh, there's not much we can do about it. Although there is a call to action at the end, but still, dirty energy, good stuff. Check it out. Uh, you know, Sebastian Copeland is a filmmaker, an activist, an environmentalist, uh, an explorer. He's amazing, and uh, he and another explorer d- made a movie called *Into the Cold* about their trek to the North Pole, and uh, it's fascinating. I mean, it is—you know—by the time you even get to where you can start it's like a 400 mile trek that takes months like two sometimes three months it's just it's endless and it is a really really fascinating film uh has all kinds of uh, really fascinating uh climate change ramifications and it's just gorgeously shot it's unbelievably great photography if nothing else you definitely got to check it out there's also a special feature on here antarctica uh the global warning which is, uh, you know, obviously about the other pole. Never the global warming. Isn't the global warming, isn't it cool? Anyway, this was the Tribeca Film Festival. It's from Shelter Island, who uh, has done a number of uh, other cool little films, like Whittle, the Jet Pioneer, uh, which was their first release. And I, you got to check it out. I mean, the North Pole is great. And uh, not, to, not to make a spoiler, but at the end of this film, they find a fat little guy and some elves. I'm just saying. What? They find a fat little guy and some elves. What are you talking about? I'm what are you telling what are you. Talking about Willis. I'm telling you. By they the do. way, can I say something? What? Now I know this. This DVD came out like three years ago, and it's yeah. a horribly mastered DVD. Yeah. But I don't care. I had a friend of mine uh, over uh, uh, crashed in my place over the weekend, and um, an old, old friend of mine. Yeah. Um, up from San Diego. Yep. Uh, so she crashed on my couch. Right. And we were uh, wanted to watch a movie last right. Friday night. Totally. And she's looking at my copious collection. Yes. My selection of DVDs and Blu-rays. Yes. This is what she picks. By the way, this will this will entertain nobody but Wade Major. Okay. Of all the movies. Yes. Of all the TV shows. Yes. Of all the documentaries. Yes. Of all the concerts. Of everything I have, you everything have. Everything in the world. Everything you have. This is what she picks. My four-disc set, the best of the match game. Oh, that's the best. It's the greatest of all time. And literally, wow. for the entire weekend, wow. that's what we watched. We watched... Wow. Uh, no one knows what we're doing. We're wow. wa- Friday night, we watched it. Saturday morning, we watched it. Yeah. But Saturday night, after we got home from dinner, we watched it. It was the And the four-disc set, which, by the way, I'm not praising the set because it's horribly done, mm-hmm. but, but the match games themselves are priceless. Two of the episodes that are featured mm-hmm. on this four-DVD set mm-hmm. featured a contestant from Wichita, Kansas... An interior designer named Kirstie Alley. Wow. 
Nobody did. That's not entertaining. Her blank anymore. was so big. Uh, BBC Earth uh, gave us Africa eye to eye with the unknown. This is a uh, Blu-ray two-disc set with ultraviolet. Uh, and uh, it's lovely. And it, The BBC guy, they have the best cinematographers in the world. It's just staggering. Uh, you know, Africa is an amazing continent. It is the most feature-rich, wildlife-rich continent on the planet. It is extraordinary. So much of it is endangered and, and threatened by uh, not just pollution, but poaching and, uh, and neglect, frankly. Uh, even in the countries that have huge, huge wildlife reserves and preserves set aside, it's it just they don't have the, the resources or the money to really take care of it. So um, th- that's why stuff like this is so important. And, of course, uh, you know, like anything natural that has anything British flavor to it, David Attenborough is the host. And it's just he's so good. And his voice and his presence lend such credibility to it. And, uh, you know what, again, beautifully, beautifully photographed, just impeccable. Uh, there are featurettes on every single episode of this, and there's an in, uh, interview stuff with uh, David Attenborough and some of the others. Uh, it's wonderful, absolutely wonderful. And then uh, equally wonderful is Disney Nature's Wings of Life, which is a Blu-ray DVD combo. This one's narrated by Meryl Streep, and uh, this is all. Of, this is some of that amazing high-speed photography that uh, gives you a look at butterflies and hummingbirds and and uh, you know all flying things. Uh, gnats and wasps and all that kind of stuff, uh, you know, uh, bees. It's pretty great. And by the way, bees are screwed. You you heard good, this, right? Good, good. Like, like good. there are beekeepers, and I'm, you know, my grandfather was a beekeeper. My uncles were beekeepers, so I know about a little bit about beekeeping. And like, there are beekeepers in, in, in the Midwest and in, in the West who lost 70% of their hive population Aww. because of these pesticides Aww. that they're using. No, Poor seriously. bees that can't sting people. <laughs> Miserable bees do nothing for us. <laughs> nothing. Zero. We need them to pollinate whatever the flowers will figure something else out they'll spill sprout wings you know whatever and we, we, yeah, can make we all start we, starving because we're the, not going to starve we can make synthetic honey we, we bees don't help us yes with they meat do Be, bees and, and growing corn bees, yes they do bees are essential they are not. so important to the ecosystem they are not they are we, so we important can live without bees <laughs> i'm telling you what the hell do bees do they don't do anything well seriously <laughs> If I want ice cream, do I need a bee to make ice cream? You do if it's like honey flavored ice cream. No, but okay, honey sweetened. I can make. We can make synthetic honey. Okay, it's the twenty first century. Really, you want what? Synthetic Monsanto organically, genetically engineered artificial honey. Either either Monsanto artificial honey or bee vomit. Okay, because that's what honey is. And by the way, do I really need a bee to make bread? This is. I need a bee to make bread. You might. This is spectacular. You got to check this out. Wings of Life. It's just beautiful. Uh, hummingbirds, especially. I love hummingbirds. Uh, they're and the screw them too, by the way. They're the coolest things in the world. They're <laughs> stupid, though. By the way, you know what? At Christie's parents' house once, a hummingbird flew in around Christmas time. It took us. It took three people with brooms and sticks like an hour and a half to chase that damn thing out with all the windows and doors open. They are the dumbest birds. It's hummingbirds like, are just beyond stupid. They're it, like they're like pigeons. With a lobotomy. It, They're it, cool. They it, fly. It, they do amazing things, but they are dumb beyond belief. Anyway, carry on. It's like that scene from uh, Big Chill. Remember the scene of the Big Chill where they uh, go into no. the attic and there's, a, there's yes. a bat there and they chase it out of the yeah. thing? Just like that, exactly. Okay. Uh, anyway, two Blu-rays from National Parks Exploration Series. Uh, I'm recommending these because if you have a high-def set, uh, this will show it off big time. One is called Voy- uh, Voyagers, Spirit of the Boundary Waters. Now, I had never heard of the Voyagers National Park. It's a uh, it's a park up it's a park up 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 North America, the largest uh, pristine wilderness in the lower forty eight states. 
And um, there's some amazing photography here, stunning high-definition stuff. Uh, that is Voyager's Spirit of the Boundary Waters. There's another one in the same series called Glacier, Crown of the Continent. And these are amazing uh, shots of uh, the Glacier National Park. And it's great. I mean, if you love to hike, by the way, now I've never been in the Glacial Nation, Glacier National Park, but from watching this Blu-ray, I can tell you that if you love to hike, there's like 700 miles of trails okay. at the Glacier National Park. Yeah. And it's beautiful stuff. Sweet. So I recommend these two only to show off your high def set. Okay, Mark, before we get into some... Uh, movies people care about? Movies people care about. Listener mail, Vox Box, all that stuff. Um, no, not yet. Um, uh, I've got some British television. Uh, I, I will do it quickly. You want to time me? Give me five sure. minutes. Give me five minutes. Hang on. Hang okay. on. Whipping out the iPhone. Okay. Hang on. Give me five minutes to blow uh, through this stuff. Give me five minutes. Hang on. Please hold. All right. Uh, five minutes. Okay. Three, two, one. Go. Okay, in the early to mid-90s, uh, there was a British series, House of Cards, which inspired, of course, the current Kevin Spacey series that is totally burning up Netflix, the uh, first original series on Netflix, produced, of course, by uh, David Fincher, and uh, a lot of people don't realize it originated in the UK, and uh, honestly, I have not seen the Kevin Spacey series yet, but uh, this one, which stars Ian Richardson and David Lyon and D- uh, Diane Fletcher, uh, the original House of Cards trilogy on Blu-ray from BBC is fantastic, so if the... Uh, American version is anything like this. I, I, it's got to be amazing and worth every reason why everybody's watching it. Uh, it is, of course, you know, it's it's political corruption and uh, all that stuff. It's just a it's a great political soap opera, and it, especially with the British accents, I, I can't imagine Kevin Spacey really coming with the kind of weight that Ian Richardson does. But man, is it good! It is just really good. So uh, definitely check out the British version of that. We also have another uh, couple of Alice in Wonderland productions from the BBC. This is uh, Alice in Wonderland and Alice Through the Looking Glass. Uh, you know what? Uh, they're, they're fine. They're, they're acceptable. I, I'm, I'm not really a huge fan of any Alice in Wonderland production that has ever been done anywhere. Uh, there's the old Hollywood one, which uh, is perfectly fine. This one, uh, you know, it's okay. Uh, it's, it's well-intentioned and well-written. So if you're an Alice in Wonderland fan, probably groove to it. Uh, Daniel Day-Lewis, now that he is a legendary uh, three-time Best, Picture, uh, Best Actor winner, uh, everybody's digging into their archives and pulling out all the old Daniel Day-Lewis stuff. We've got a Daniel Day-Lewis triple feature. And uh, from both of these are from BBC. And then a Daniel Day-Lewis um, film called My Brother Jonathan, which is based on a novel by Francis Brett Young. Um, this is all old stuff. The uh, triple feature includes How Many Miles to Babylon, The Insurance Man, and Dangerous Corner. You know what? I mean, there's really absolutely nothing to recommend this. It's just straight-up BBC television stuff. But he's good in all of them, especially in How Many Miles to Babylon, which I actually think is really, really, really good. Um, the other stuff is just, you know, it, it, only if you're strictly a fan of his. Prime of Miss Jean Brody was a movie way back in the day that won an Academy Award for Maggie Smith. And uh, this one is a television uh, series, uh, kind of a miniseries done in seven episodes. And uh, this is from Acorn, and it's perfectly fine. I wouldn't say it's uh, as good as the, uh, the, the famous feature film, but it's, uh, it's certainly acceptable. This was originally done in 1978 and has a lovely performance by Geraldine McEwen. So uh, that, it's recommended, but, uh, you know, with kind of semi-reservations. Uh, Ripper Street is uh, pretty cool, but pretty kind of gruesome. Um, this is uh, the, uh, kind of a whole thriller built around Jack the Ripper and the attempts to catch Jack the Ripper. And I don't know why everybody – I mean, I realize Jack the Ripper is a gruesome subject matter, but it's a, it's a little bit intense. So this is, a, this is actually a series, 
And this is the first season of it, and I must say it's very impressive, but I don't know that it's worth, uh, you know, they're never going to catch him because then the series ends. Uh, the Complete Collection of No Job for a Lady, which is a lovely comedy starring uh, Penelope Keith. Uh, this is kind of a British television classic. Uh, it's vanished a little bit in recent years, but uh, worth checking out. Uh, you know, if you're a vintage British television comedy fan, you'll, you'll enjoy it. Garrow's Law, is uh, this is the complete collection. Uh, if you want to sort of see the origins of the British legal system and uh, get all into the, you know, down and dirty in 18th century uh, England, it's, uh, you know... The, the, the wigs and right and it's all kind of pre-colonial and gritty and dirty streets and people saying things like ow whatever dude keep yep. going uh miss fisher's murder mysteries uh this is kind of like murder she wrote except she's young and attractive this is series one i would say it's based on a series of novels by a, a novelist named carrie greenwood i am not familiar with them but i will say i i enjoy um I enjoy the acting in this. It's a little bit on the long side. There are, you know, 13 episodes here, a total of like seven and a half hours, and it moves very slowly. But uh, I really like the acting. They're fun mysteries. And because I know I only have seconds left, uh, we've got Dirk Gently, which is uh, an awful lot of fun. This is originally seen on the BBC. This is from Acorn, and uh, this is based on books by Douglas Adams. All I'm going to say is, you know, Douglas Adams, such a fun writer. Dirk Gently, totally a great character in the Douglas Adams vein. We've also got Kingdom, the Stephen Fry thing. Uh, oh, it's a oh, complete series, Stephen Fry. Eight DVDs, Kingdom. It's been out before. Um, real quick, Mind to a Kill, complete collection. Uh, awesome, awesome uh, crime drama on the, on the UK. Check it out. It's been out different seasons, been out previously. And then uh, I love this Chance in a Million, the complete collection. This uh, was a wonderful, wonderful uh, production that starred Simon Callow and Brenda Blethyn. I got to tell you, a young Simon Callow and a young Brenda Blethyn, they are both so wonderful. I love them and everything they've done Not since. Simon Cowell, the. Um... No, no, Simon Callow. Okay, Four Weddings and a Funeral. Sure. Four Weddings and a Funeral. Sure Simon Callow. Uh, this is uh, this is just great, and it's got commentaries here. Simon Callow on the commentaries. Simon Callow has one of the greatest voices ever, ever in the history of movies. He's just wonderful. It's Brigadoon. You remember that from Four Weddings and a Funeral? Hysterical, wonderful, wonderful uh, actor, and uh, just great here. Terrific. So uh, two great actors in uh, in a classic of British television. And there we go. Done. That took more than five minutes. Yeah, whatever. Okay, so now can we start? With movies that people care about. Yes. What are well, we doing? We're, you know, uh, I can men- make mention. Actually, let me make mention real quickly of a, uh, since we're talking about French films, uh, this is kind of nominally a French film from a Korean director. Hong sang Soo made a movie with Isabelle Huppert called uh, In Another Country, which was uh, kind of a big deal at Cannes for a moment. And it's, an, you know, it's weird. It's a French actress in a Korean director's movie, and it's shot in English. So it kind of, it's sort of a film that has no home in a way. But uh, it's cool. It's um, it's like this. It's this cool, artsy. You know, uh, it, it's a little bit like uh, Lost in Translation with a French woman and a Korean dude, and it's all in English. And it's just uh, it takes place in a Korean resort town, and it's just a it's a nice little kind of uh, pastoral, new wavy movie, and it's it's really nice. And I I can't I can't not recommend anything with Isabelle Huppert in it. Uh, what I can recommend, only by strength of the cast and of the sweeping action, is Zulu Dawn. Oh, dude, Zulu Dawn is rad. Zulu Dawn, nineteen seventy nine. Burt Lancaster, Peter O'Toole, what a cast. Bob Hoskins, great stuff. It's got sweeping cast. battles, and it's really totally awesome. It's um, takes place in British South Africa in uh, late eighteen hundreds, 
And it's about the Battle of, like, Islanduana or something. I still can't pronounce it after having seen the film, like, three times in my life. Uh, but it's really good stuff. Totally. It's, again, it's uh, got a great British cast. Simon Ward's in it, too. Denholm Elliott, who, of course, was in uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, Bob Hoskins, who I mentioned before. Really good stuff. Um, this is actually a prequel to a film that I don't like as much called Zulu, which is in 1964. This is Zulu Dawn, 1979. This yeah. is certainly the best film ever directed by Douglas Hickox. No doubt about it. Direct, who otherwise directed like kind of nothing. Yeah. Uh, so Zulu Dawn, does it look good on Blu-ray? Yes. And not bad from the people at Severin Films. Yeah. Um, special features. I'm surprised there are any special features on this thing. So you have to commend Severin for even having any forethought when it comes to special features. Um, new interview with the uh, with an historical advisor, Midge Carter. By the way, if your name is Midge, chances are you're over 50. I'm just putting it out there. Your name is Midge. Midge? Yes. Like, like Midger of Ultravox? You know? <laughs> Feed the world. Let them know it's Christmas time. Right, he, he wrote and produced that. Anyway, Zulu Dawn. Uh, watch it for the cast. Okay. And the action. Good action. Um, you know what? Got a bunch of uh, Olive releases here that I'll, I'll go through really quickly. Um... They are they are all you know Olive just keeps acquiring all this really cool stuff that that people keep wanting released and that these respective uh, the various distributors in question mostly Paramount just won't release. A lot of people have been like, "Where's Monster Squad on Blu-ray? What's wrong with Paramount?" Uh, you know what? It's probably one of the best films that Shane Black ever wrote. Shane Black, who is now having a sudden bizarre career resurgence after going into Howard Hughes mode for like a decade, he's now coming out and he, Shane Black's uh, directing Iron Man. The, uh, the new Iron Man. It's crazy. Uh, anyway, Monster Squad, really really one of the more fun films that he wrote. Uh, pretty great. It's out on, uh, you know, executive produced, by the way, of all people, by Peter Hyams and Rob Cohen. I mean, it's amazing the people that had a hand in this movie. Uh, no, this is terrific. Great effects by uh, Stan Winston. Really fun. Uh, very, very decent Blu-ray transfer for a movie that's otherwise not that great looking, but just a lot of fun and content. Uh, Edgar G. Ulmer is a fascinating uh, figure, mostly directed uh, Poverty Row movies back in the day. Uh, a real lowbrow guy who kind of became like a like an uh, in, independent auteur with next to no money and no resources. But he did make a few films, uh, kind of bigger budget and a little bit more legit. And one of them is uh, 1948's Ruthless which has a tremendous cast uh, that includes, among other people, Martha Vickers and Sidney Greenstreet. And that's tremendous for Ulmer, by the way. I mean, to just have Sidney Greenstreet in an Ulmer film, you're like, wow, that's a coup. Um, pretty cool, uh, little funky kind of gritty noir. I, uh, I really thought this movie was terrific. I've, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not hugely, hugely visually dazzling, so I don't know that it really benefits that much from Blu-ray, but it's not bad. The Atomic Kid is very, very funny. This has, you know, we, we should mention also with the passing, passing of Jonathan Winters, uh, who also passed away, uh, funniest man imaginable. Um, we only now have one remaining original cast member still alive from It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. You know who that is? Bob Newhart. Bob Newhart. Is Bob Newhart in Mad, 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 Mad World? No. I, that up. I don't even no. like that. You know I don't like that movie. That's one of the famous uh, Mark. Why doesn't Mark like that movie so, movies? Suddenly I was like, wait a minute. Did I miss Bob Newhart? Did he, was he in the background with the Three Stooges at some point? Did I, how did I miss that? Well, Sid no. Caesar's still around, isn't he? Sid Caesar? Sid yeah. Caesar's still around? Oh, yeah. He's 90. Is he really? So, yep. He was born in 1922. He's still around. Wow, Sid son of a gun. All the drugs and he's still... Wow. It was the alcohol. Well, then, then make it two members. Uh, I was always all about to say Mickey Rooney is still alive. Sid mm-hmm. Caesar's uh, still around. Well, make it I two. Remember, I remember... Uh, uh, Sid Caesar's just a bitter old man. He is. He's I, angry. I remember... I re- here's, here's what I remember. Hmm. This is my Sid Caesar story. Okay. 
This show's going to go on forever. Yeah, well. Okay. My sensitive story. Yes. I produced him on a talk show, same talk show that I produced sure. Roger Ebert on. Sure. Big thrill to interview Sid Caesar and right. TV pioneer. Folks, you don't know who Sid Caesar is. Look him up. TV pioneer in terms of sketch comedy. Um, so at that point, like the mid-90s, he'd be, he had already become old and bitter. Sure. And I'm talking to him about, in the pre-interview, which is when the celebrity calls you on the phone and we discuss what we're going to talk about during the show itself. We're talking on the phone about... Um, Live TV. Oh, Sid, what was it like? You know, live TV. He goes, he's, he's already a bitter old man. Live TV. You know, when we did your show of shows, we were live. If you messed up, it was live. And I said, oh, you mean like uh, SNL on NBC? No, no, no. We were live. If you messed up, you were, everybody saw it. There is nothing like that on TV right now. TV is just not the same. There is nothing like that. Oh, you mean like SNL, which is live on NBC? Every... Saturday night mm-hmm. on NBC for the last 25 years? Mm-hmm. No, we were live. <laughs> if you'd messed up, like, okay, Sid, you know what? Uh, look, you're, Fine. A, you're a pioneer, but uh, I'll, I'll give you that one. Goodbye. Well, uh, okay, so screw that. Anyway, uh, Mickey Rooney. <laughs> Mickey Rooney is in The Atomic Kid, which is, along with Robert Strauss, who's also very, very funny. Uh, the Atomic Kid is a little bit politically incorrect because Mickey Rooney basically survives an atomic blast in Nevada and becomes a celebrity because of it. And, of course, it's not really funny to say, oh, that's hysterical. You, they blew up an atomic bomb because North Korea is about to actually start a nuclear war. No, it's suddenly, not. I they're know, but it, it just feels that. very yeah. – so anyway – Go in. You've been warned. It's very much of its era. Uh, you know what? A nice, uh, nice little period actioner war thing, real gritty and and uh, very, uh, you know, in the Samuel Fuller vein is China Gate. If you love Samuel Fuller movies, you will just know it is just uh, testosterone and passion and heat and a little bit of cheesiness, which is what all Sam Fuller movies are. This is from 1957. Uh, Angie Dickinson, young and fetching. Uh, Lee Van Cleef, just uh, crusty and crotchety. Uh, Pretty great. I I actually really enjoyed it. That's, uh, of course, on Blu-ray, as these all are. Sandy Dennis is wonderful. That Cold Day in the Park. Directed by Robert Altman from a novel by Richard Miles. Any Altman film with Sandy Dennis is well worth seeing. It's not a great Altman film, but it's definitely worth checking out. Sam Wood. Uh, we're going to go through the rest of these real quickly. Sam Wood, another classic uh, Hollywood director of the golden era. Directed Gene Arthur in The Devil and Miss Jones. Not The Devil in Miss Jones, the porn film. No. This is The Devil and Miss Jones, the film that the porn film riffed on, which most people now have totally forgotten because it was made in 1941. Uh, of course, in 1972 or whatever, when they you know, did the, uh, the porn film, everybody kind of remembered movies from 1941. By the way, you realize that it's, it's like long Devil in Miss Jones is further in our history. Than, I knew you. You know what? You know the, I hate that stuff. <laughs> This this movie is less farther than when we were yeah. born from the other movie that's closer to when we were dead. That's right. What does that mean? I still don't understand how I'm that's just supposed saying, to make you go, wow. We're old. Uh, well, Don- you know what? Then just say we're old. <laughs> Donald Pleasance, Geraldine Chaplin, and Dana Andrews in Innocent Bystanders. Are there any good movies today, this week? Yeah, totally. I'm just, this is all of. We want to we make mention of these. Oh, from 1972. God. This is a Damn nice... It. It's a funky 1972 film. Uh, I'll mention the last two real quickly. Sunshine's Bright. Uh, John Ford film that a lot of people have probably never heard of. Definitely worth checking out. Um, it is, uh, it, it's just great because Will Rogers is in it, basically. And anything that Will Rogers is in is worth checking out. And then uh, lastly, Hell's Half Acre, which is um, 
kind of a cool noir that was made in 1954, and uh, you know, not a not not kind of a list, but it's uh, it's it's you know, it's cool because it's uh, like Hawaiian noir, right? It's uh, it's set in Hawaii, so it's got a little you know, kind of a tropical Lua. vibe to it. Yeah, there you go. Exactly, you got it. All right, you know, we're we're uh, we're, we're a month late on this, but I'm going for it anyway because we never discussed. Well, they, they only just sent it to us. Who framed Roger Rabbit? I mean, they didn't send this to us sooner. I couldn't. I couldn't. I couldn't furnish it sooner. This movie is unbelievably, fantastically great. It is a classic. It is one of my favorite Disney films of all time. I love this film more than uh, loving films that I love because they're films. I don't know what that means. <laughs> uh, this film is fantastic. Now, uh, I am letting you know that the transfer here is a very good transfer. However, because the movie itself was a uh, was a very technically ambitious at the time blend of animation and live action uh, that kind of renders the tr- transfer here less than ideal again they did the best job they could considering the challenges of making the film at the time but still uh, there's a lot of great uh, features Blu-ray uh, exclusive features on this thing there's also a DVD if you buy the Blu-ray and it's just great stuff do you realize who first of all do you realize who was supposed to direct this film uh, I mean, lots origi- of people, originally? Lo- lots of people were supposed to direct this film. I know. But J.J. wrote a sequel to it that n- never got made. No, 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 no. Here's, here's who turned this film down. Are you ready? Yeah. Because originally the studio didn't want Bob Zemeckis. They did That's not. weird. They did why, not. why would you not want Bob Zemeckis? Uh, Bob because Zemeckis. his previous films weren't that great. Oh, geez. Or didn't... didn't uh, Romancing the Stone? Really? Well, okay, whatever. Come on. Hey, look. Uh, I, oh, I just... I just well, it's also like, you know, used cars and whatever. Yeah, right. Um, Terry Gilliam. Yeah, Terry Gilliam turned it down. I can see that. I can see them wanting him, and I can see him turning it down. Yes. Yep. Which is uh, wow. which is kind of tr- although it would be a way more twisted film because you know with, with Zemeckis back on board, it was a twisted film. But it was fun twisted. Whereas with Zemeckis, you would get that crazy anarchic sort of humor, which I don't know if Roger Rabbit really needs. But anyway, Spielberg Spielberg was also uh, uh, because this is like this is is this Amblin too. No, it's such. Yes, it's a Steven Spielberg film. Yeah. Spielberg was instrumental in getting all the classic uh, cartoon characters to appear in the movie. Uh, which is great. Although he from didn't Disney, get everybody from well, he but he, from he, Disney from Disney and Warner Brothers, and you even get Droopy, That's which is right. which is a nice trick. That's right. But he didn't get Popeye. No, and he didn't get Casper, and didn't get Woody Woodpecker. Well, that's fine. Yeah. So. Uh, uh, I mean, pretty much all the Harvey Comics ones. But anyway, uh, Roger Rabbit, Robert, Roger Rabbit, Roger Rabbit. Yeah. Who don't stop the recording? I'm not. Who framed Roger Rabbit? Fantastic film, love it. One of my all-time favorites. Bob Hoskins, one of the great Oscar slights of all time. True. Tell me it's not true. I agree. He should have been nominated for best Should've actor. Been. Would have been amazing. Was not. Uh, I'm going to mention uh, some old films here: a cool comedy and three noir. Before Mark gets into this just luscious, goopy bunch of criterions, on approval is a fascinating British comedy because it was directed by Lindsay Anderson, and uh, it's kind of a forgotten film. This is out from Inception. And uh, it's it's a it's just a fascinating 1944 kind of missing movie to be honest. It's just sort of vanished. But there's a great commentary on here by Jeffrey Vance that fills in all the blanks, and uh, Stills Gallery of stuff from the uh, British Film Institute collection that it just really kind of gives you all the luster of when the film was made. It is really a lovely, lovely movie, and it's based on a play. It is incredibly funny. And uh, it's got uh, Googie Withers in it, and if you don't know Googie Withers, she's just a delight, one of the one of the great actresses of that time. 
And uh, directed by Lindsay Anderson, who just went on to make movies nothing like this at all. So it's a, it's a great artifact. That's on Blu-ray from Inception. And then we've got three great noirs here. Uh, Lara is one of the all-time great noirs ever. Maybe the best role Dana Andrews ever had. Gene Tierney. It's just time that came out on Blu-ray. Oh, my gosh. It's gorgeous. From 20th Century Fox. Uh, it, it is an above-average Blu-ray transfer. The black and white, it gets a little chalky in places. I wasn't totally enthralled by it. I thought they could have done a better job. But really, uh, best thing that Dana Andrews ever did. One of the best things Otto Preminger ever did. Uh, some of the best music ever written for a movie ever. And the first movie where I was able to fit by the... Because you're not going to give that to me, are you? No, hell no. All right. Well, the, the first movie where I realized that the name of a character says a lot about them. Yep. And that is all I will say. Because mm-hmm. if you want to know who the totally villain is true. in this movie, just... Look at everybody's name. There you go. And then uh, Postman Always Rings Twice, the original John Garfield, Lana Turner movie, which is sensational. It was, of course, remade with Jack Nicholson and uh, and Jessica Lange. And there are lots of other movies, foreign movies, like Judo, for example, the Zhang Yimou film, Oscar-nominated, that have a certain uh, kind of Postman Always Rings Twice vibe to them. Of course, you could also say that uh, Double Indemnity has kind of a Postman Always Rings <gasps> Twice vibe. One of my favorite movies of you all time. You could even say Body Heat is <laughs> kind of a riff on that, right? I mean, they all sort of... Uh, uh, they all camp out in the same territory. Anyway, uh, just in, in, you know, the novel originally was written by James N. M. Kane, who also wrote Double Indemnity. So it's not surprising that it would have a lot of those same, uh, same uh, elements to it. But uh, this is really a pretty terrific Blu-ray from Warner Brothers. They didn't make it into a Blu-ray book, uh, I assume, because they didn't think there'd be any interest in it. But the transfer is just as impressive as if it were a Blu-ray book. So very good. And then a little bit lesser known, also from uh, 20th Century Fox, is Panic in the Streets. Panic in the Streets was more of a big deal then. It's kind of faded from view a little bit. I but, like this movie. This but it's, movie. it's a really cool yep. movie. And, uh, you know, not one of Elia Kazan's best, but certainly a, a, a worthwhile film. Very meaningful film. Kind of a good, you know, kind of an interesting uh, social paranoia thing going to, for it. Uh, Richard Widmark, uh, just, you know, you see why he was one of the dominant actors that time, why he was such a heavy hitter. And also Barbara Bel Geddes, you know. Uh, we always forget what a great actress she was. She was, you know, the grandmother or the mother on, uh, on Dallas for so long. That was her persona and then a few people found out oh look she's also she plays that matronly figure who paints and talks to Jimmy Stewart when he needs somebody to bounce ideas off of in Vertigo Uh, but she's also a really really good actress from the era and she's in Panic in the Streets as well very very good really solid performance from her so you know why um, Panic in the Streets I'm glad this is on Blu-ray finally you know why because when I when I streamed this on Netflix yeah uh, it froze like 10 minutes into the movie really yep it would not it would not unfreeze. You know, that was actually part of the director's cut. No, it's not. Yeah, it is. Um, I'm going to write that down. Let you do get that. that. Because you, know, you won't give it to me. No. Uh, wait, so here's Panic the thing. In the wait. Streets. Yes. Let me tell you what I saw this morning. What would you see? I saw a movie this morning. What would you see? I saw a movie called Antiviral, yeah. which is the uh, film debut of Brandon Cronenberg, who is um, oh, David Cronenberg's. And you know what? What? Interesting movie. Really? Yes. Seriously? It, it, uh, the apple didn't fall far from the tree stylistically. Really? However, when it comes to what this film is about, yeah. interesting stuff. Seriously, it is about it is it is. Although you do get wrapped up into the oh he's so much like his dad sort of stylistic excesses and whatnot, oh, yeah. he's very austere and very creepy and yeah, that kind yeah. of stuff. And there's some you know body blah blah blah, blah body blah blah blah. And yeah. it, the actual plot of the film, the story, the way yeah. you go is very interesting. Hmm. It's very much about our celebrity culture That's and our obsession with celebrities. That is what the movie is about. Anyway, I bring that up because. Um, one of the three Criterion films we have to talk about 
is Naked Lunch. Now, Naked Lunch was uh, directed by Brandon's father, David Cronenberg, and uh, this is based on the 1950s novel from, obviously, William S. Burroughs. And the reason why it took, let me see, 1959, 1991, 10, 20, 30, 40. The reason it took about 30, uh, 42 years to make this uh, novel into a film is because it was considered unfilmable. And if anyone's going to take on an unfilmable movie, it would be David Cronenberg. And uh, I, you know what? This movie, boy, this movie's just a mixed bag for me. Uh, you know what? It's very cerebral, and it's, but yet it's very kind of flip and kind of funny, and it's definitely in its own little world. He, he does the best he can to make a nonlinear novel into a moderately linear film. And uh, Peter Weller, uh, God love him, the guy, it's just a thankless role, but he does a great job. As, a, as, a, as an exterminator and a drug addict. And, uh, you know, it's, it very much is what Cronenberg likes, which is it's a bit out there, and it's about a guy who's destroying his own body. Pretty much every Cronenberg film is about a guy destroying his own body. And so, anyway... It's kind of true, isn't it? It is. Yeah. And so it, the movie's a little bit warped, and it's a little bit fun. It's pretty much as unfilmable as you would think. But still, I have to give it to um, Cronenberg for coming up with a halfway decent... Better than expected adaptation of uh, Burroughs's Naked Lunch. Anyway, as usual, Criterion goes nuts with the uh, extras. Uh, great new digital transfer, a um, making of from 1992. Love those vintage making ofs. Uh, there's an essay. There's an audio recording of uh, Burroughs reading from the from his novel Naked Lunch, which is uh, good stuff. Um, gallery of photos, which is kind of like who cares? But uh, you know, I I think you guys should give Naked Lunch a try. I think you will totally dig it. Awesome. Now, Wade. When I say yes. the words Repo Man, what do you think? Uh, Alex Cox is Repo Man. That's what you think? Yeah, that's all, that's all that's I it? think. That's it. I don't, I don't, I've never had yeah. a car repoed. All I can think of is you know, uh, aliens and a trunk and a really cool low-budget movie. That pretty much ended Alex Cox's career. <laughs> it did. It's like he didn't do anything afterwards. He just you know, went away and made weird movies like The Highwaymen and stuff like that. Now, this has been on DVD before, but it has uh, begged for a definitive uh, Blu-ray version, if not a definitive DVD version, too. And this is kind of it. This is from Criterion. This is great stuff. This is uh, approved by Alex Cox. And what can I say about Repo Man? It is, a, it is like the ultimate cult film. It's really one of the ultimate cult films of the 80s, if not of any time. It is really wildly out there. I mean, you talk about Naked Lunch being out there. Naked Lunch is out there in a very kind of cerebral way. Repo Man is out there in just a... It's just a fun, punk kind of a way. It is, again, like Wade says, it is low budget. And, you know, if you're a teenager or a young adult, you will totally groove on this film. It is baffling and crazy. And I don't know what happens at the end. There's some sort of thing, something explodes at the end. I'm not quite sure I understood what it was, but there you go. And uh, I like this film a lot. This is just, a, but you have to be in the mood for a film like this. Uh, because it definitely does whatever it wants to do, as Alex Cox's uh, want to do. Yep. So there you go, Repo Man. It looks pretty good. It's a very low-budget film, but it does look good. Uh, there is a uh, audio commentary with uh, Alex Cox and some of the producers. There's new interviews with uh, Iggy Pop and some of the actors. Uh, there's a roundtable discussion about the making of the film, which I liked a lot, which included Cox and a couple of the producers. And uh, yeah, good stuff. So Repo Man is the second... Uh, Criterion film this week. Yeah, and then we got third, which you, is which you, is actually my favorite. Well, then you can talk about it. Then you <laughs> can talk about it if you like it that much. I do. If you, if you like it that much, why don't you marry it? Okay, fine. I will. It's actually a <laughs> Japanese movie, which uh, it, it, which Mark just hates talking about. That's uh, not true. Uh, well, you hate talking about obscure uh, early Japanese New Wave movies because you don't want to have to pronounce this guy's name. That's a problem. And I don't either. 
<laughs> see, I see. Gate of Hell is good. What I like better, Gates of Flesh. Okay, fine. Which is another film from that time in that yeah, country. True. Gate of Hell is a movie by Tainasuki Kinagasa. If there's anyone who speaks no. Japanese, you're going to tell me, no, it's... No, 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 no. The great thing about the Japanese language, and again, I, I, yeah. I spent three weeks, in, three weeks in Japan, and I was kind of talking to people and getting to absorb as much of the culture yeah. and language as I could. The great thing about Japanese names yeah. is that there's no weird pronunciations. Exactly as you see it, just take a beat, read it slowly, read it phonetically. There's no crazy accents or long E's or short E's. Just read the name, and you'll All be right. right. Well, anyway. So this his is... name... Is Tianasuke Kinugasa. Okay, That's fine. It. All right. That's it. Uh, it, it. Tough one for me. Stars Kazuo Hasegawa. That's it. Brilliant. No, well, good no for you. No crazy things going on like English. Not a lot of extras on this, but it's a terrific movie. Wonderful transfer. It's in color from 1953. And uh, this actually won an Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Film. And uh, it uh, it's it's pretty awesome. Uh, it's 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 a it's a medieval thing. It takes place in 12th century Japan, and uh, basically concerns a warrior who uh, falls in love with a uh, woman who is married. And um, you would think that's wow, that's just a, you know we've we've seen that a million times. But all of the uh, all the ramifications of you know Japanese society and period Japan and all of those weird feudal things. You know, feudal Japan is just such a fascinating, unusual social structure. It doesn't mirror anything else anywhere in, in world, world history and any other culture. So, Talking it, about feudal Japan, yeah. it's just feudal. Ugh, ouch. Sounds like something you'd say. Ow. Meaning it's not funny. Yeah. So anyway, really, really good film. Great transfer. Not a lot of extras, but if you love Japanese films from the period, check it out. And then lastly, we've got a couple of musicals, Mark. Yay. Musicals long overdue. Oh, both, I, oh, I like both those. Both of them on Blu-ray from 20th Century Fox. Both of them okay transfers. Uh, that Thing You Do, Tom Hanks' directing debut. Awesome, love it. Which I, I adore this film. Yep, yep you know, good stuff. I mean, seriously. The, we, we go on to call the O'Neaters. That was fun. <laughs> yep, it's good just stuff. So, so funny. Yep, love it. Uh, this is the film, basically, that uh, made Steve Zahn when he said goofy things like and that. What happened to Steve the Zahn? the O'Neaters. He priced himself out of independent films. What happened to... Right I'm an IMDb Steve Zahn right now, because I have to know. Oh, yeah. He's, what he's, the heck happened I know. to Steve Zahn? It's amazing. Anyway, Tom Everett Scott, Liv Tyler, Jonathan uh, Skek. Uh, it's a really fun film about a, uh, a band, you know, kind of trying to work their way up in the 1960s and become, uh, you know, the next big thing. And they wind up becoming, of course, a one-hit wonder, and they're called The Wonders. It's great. Oh, he's uh, in... Uh, he's done a bunch of Tremé's. Has he? Yeah, the that's HBO what he's, that's show. That's what he's doing then. Wow. That's all he's doing. God, that guy was like... I know, he, he was the next funny thing. He was like the Zach Galifianakis of 2004. <laughs> I kind of was. Anyway, this is a great movie. It's uh, it's fine on Blu-ray, not, not dazzling. Hello, Dolly. I have been waiting for so long. Um, it's funny because this is what Christy sings to make our daughter go to sleep, and uh, it usually works. Freaking kid. Absolutely. She's adorable, isn't she? She, You know what? It's pretty Hall of Fame cute, that kid. She's Hall of Fame cute, all right. Anyway, uh, Hello, Dolly is one of the all-time big disasters in, in musical history. I mean, this movie just tanked. 
tanked unbelievably hard. And uh, it's amazing because it's really a lot of fun. Gene Kelly directed this. He's not on screen, but he directed it. Tommy Toon is in this with his, like, 18-foot body and his 24-feet legs. Um, well, the thing is that Gene, Gene Kelly used to, like, he, he directed a bunch of movies. He used to co-direct stuff because he would direct well, the he, he dancing co- scenes. Yeah, absolutely. And then somebody else would direct the He directed the, the whole thing of this, and it pretty thing. much ended his directing career. But wow, wow. Uh, Barbara Streisand is wonderful. Walter Matthau, hairy ears and all, just wonderful. And Michael Crawford. The same Michael Crawford from uh, The Knack and How to Get It and, of course, Phantom of the Opera. So he's, uh, he's just wonderful. I just think this is a great Hollywood uh, spectacle. It's unfortunate it lost so much money at the time, but it's really, really terrific, and I just can't say enough about it. Michael Kidd uh, choreographed the whole thing, and Michael Kidd and Tommy Toon, there's a really interesting axis there because Tommy Toon's choreography now is sort of like Michael Kidd 2.0. It's really fascinating if you if you, you sort of sort of know choreography history. Uh, not again, not a perfect transfer. I could have done with something better and a lot splashier. But this certainly, you know what? Not having had this at all for the longest time, I will take it even with only two featurettes as extras. And um, the other thing is that this is kind of you know Hello Dolly has experienced a bit of a resurgence and a reevaluation thanks to what movie, Mark? Oh, uh, Star Wars. Wally, come on. Wally, Wally used to watch uh, the, the. He fell in love with uh, Eve because of the little, uh, you know. The, I the don't remember that he to, any of that film. He used to watch Hello Dolly, clip from Hello Dolly. It, you know what? If if that happened during the first half hour of Wally, yeah, uh, that's great. If it happened during the last hour, that wasn't very good. Then that's another thing. All right. And uh, now we're going to get into some listener mail. No, not yet. No. Listener mail and then Vox Box. And uh, we might try to get to a little bit of television. But, Mark, I have to admit, this is one of the funniest and most awesomely cool uh, listener mails we've ever had. And I'm going to read this, and you know what this is because you loved it. Um, this is from uh, Dave in Dublin, Ireland. God, I love the Irish. They have such a great sense of humor. I love my Irish, my 25% Irish, thanks to my grandmother. My grandmother, Nora Bell, love you. Uh, after listening to the Digigods podcast for so long, I've begun to notice that Mark has a lot of catchphrases, some used more frequently than others. Yeah, some, I, I think I used a couple today. Some deliberate, and he, some he probably doesn't even realize he's saying. So I thought I'd compile a list for your amusement. Uh, on the topic of you guys doing a movie review show for IGN, would love to see it happen. Miss your weekly banter on new movies. So here we go. Can I just say something? Mark wants to make a point. Are you going to read all these? Yeah. Oh, By the way, Mark wants to make a point 2.0. Don't stop the recording. Mark, I said that today. Yeah, Mark can't remember the name of a movie. Uh, Star Wars. Star Wars. Star Wars. <laughs> Wade can't remember the name of a movie. Oh, stupid. Insert cute animal. Said uh, well, through, I, I, you know, I did not say that. Uh, I did not say that about your daughter. Though. No, you didn't. Said Although through, I have said, said that about, about said somebody's clen- daughter. Yes, yeah, said through clenched teeth. Fuh, duh, isn't it obvious? Yawn. Mark is bored with Wade's story. Can I sing the song? It's box box. <laughs> Unky Wade. Mark wants to keep a Blu-ray. Yeah, an awesome movie. Cool and stuff and junk. Mark gets down with the young people. Ooh, I said that today. You did. It was awesome. Well, thank. By the way, I love I love Dublin. Dublin's awesome. Yeah, it, it's a great place. It's a great time. Longtime listener Eric Altieri says, uh, Mark and Wade, what would you say is the best website or websites for comprehensive database of the releases of movies on home video? Say, uh, charting them from VHS through Blu-ray, including Laserdisc, Betamax, DVD, etc. With so many titles having a myriad of releases, it's hard to keep track. Any ideas? Uh, I don't know of any site that keeps track of everything from all formats, from VHS through Laserdisc through everything. I, I don't know any site 
that actually uh, manages that comprehensive of a database, you sort of have to go to like IMDb sometimes and 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 dig down into the guts of a movie's listing to see if an individual movie has had uh, all different releases. But I, for just DVD and Blu-ray, I always go to DVDPriceSearch.com. I find that to be the most comprehensive list. I agree. Uh, that's that's the best one that I've found. But if any of our uh, any of our uh, listeners know of anything better, by all means, send it along and, uh, and help Eric and the rest of us find something more comprehensive. Uh, and then uh, Jason Vargo says, Wade, got a question for you. I've been around the block more than a few times regarding video quality and all the different terms, but you just used one I need your help to explain. You said latitude in Lincoln was very good or something to that effect. What is latitude in regards to picture quality? Um, to to kind of I, I, I we were both talking about latitude and basically to clarify that latitude is a photographic term it is it is the range of uh, detail relative to light that you can see in what film captures and film as a capture format is still superior to any digital format mainly because of the latitude for example if you like shoot uh, a room where there's like a completely dark corner and then there's another corner that's totally brightly lit a film with a really great latitude will show you all the detail in that really dark corner, and it will still enable you to see detail in the really brightly lit corner. It won't lose any of that. That's your latitude. It's the range of detail that you can see in uh, in the in, in you know from dark to light. Uh, digital, even now, really good digital. It'll either blow out the bright spot or it'll just drop the dark all the way into chalk. And um, as a as a reproduction format, digital does a very very good job of giving you the latitude that you capture on film. So Lincoln, with all of its great latitude, and you can say this about any Malick film as well, is reproduced beautifully on Blu-ray. But when you're putting it down, uh, it's different from actually having to capture it in real time because you don't have to put it down necessarily in real time. You know, the transfer process is is a, is a much there's more flexibility, more elasticity. When you're capturing something, it's real time. The camera's going, and it's got to grab all of that information that's coming through the lens, and it's got to drop it onto the chip in real time. And to be able to handle that much light and that much range and that much latitude, there's, there's a level of processing and algorithmic uh, complexity and efficiency that they just haven't been able to push these cameras to, at least not at an affordable level yet. So that's why we talk about latitude. It's a film thing. So basically, if, if I could say this in English, because I don't know what you just said. Okay. When you shoot film, yeah. sometimes you overexpose it to get the effect you want. Sometimes you underexpose it to get the effect you want. I believe you're saying that latitude represents the amount that you can overexpose or underexpose your film and still get a good picture. Pretty much, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I said that in five seconds. Kyle Stevens, I've now seen both parts uh, one and two of the animated movie The Dark Knight Returns, and I must say they should have just recast Ledger and made that instead of The Dark Knight Rises. This is the first time I can say the animated movie far exceeds the live-action counterpart. The animated movie is more compelling. Sure, for the sake of the Nolan universe, cut out the Superman section instead of Mutants, make the gang in part one The League of Shadows with Bane as leader. If you haven't watched the two animated movies, I highly recommend it. The scene, last scene with the Joker is more engaging and conveys the twisted relationship Batman shares with him better than anything Nolan has ever done. Even the soundtrack's more Batmanish than Zimmer's. This movie is what sh- uh, Rises should have been. Kyle Stevens. Uh, I've heard that from a lot of people, actually. I've heard a lot of people say that that's just they, they felt like that was a missed opportunity and the wrong people made the Batman movie. Really? Yeah. I disagree with that. Although, I'm so, although, uh, although I love the third film, I thought it was great, uh, I'm still waiting to figure out how Bane actually dies in it. Or maybe he doesn't die. I don't know. He, they, they, they bust through a wall. He gets hit by something. I can't remember. 
Bane, you know, falls and tumbles into a, into another wall, and then you never see him again. And last one before we get to our Vox box is uh, no, not yet. Tim Strobel says, uh, "Dear Gods, I've been getting more into the lesser-known films and Criterion's of late. Now I bought The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai in the Eighth Dimension, and I'm peeved that there are no English subtitles. I have moderate to severe hearing loss, and often use subtitles, especially for a lot of British stuff. Now, why do some studios release films without subtitles?" I've seen it on some newer films. It bothers me. I was forced to find a subtitle file and watch the movie on my computer. But I have a high-def TV and a recliner for a reason. I also wish to know if more seasons of St. Elsewhere will ever get released. Only season one seems to be available. Uh, as always, you guys are my favorite podcast. Thank you, sir. And he says, P.S., why hasn't Mark contracted diabetes yet from all the baking? Mark? Why, why haven't, haven't I? I don't know. Because I, I, You know what? It's, it's going to happen. There's a countdown. Okay. And I often wonder that, actually. Yeah. Because I do love junk food. You know, the first the first uh, 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 syllable of diabetes is die. So you're saying... And the last one is tease. I'm just saying. There's so you, something So you're that. saying that if I eat a lot of junk food, it's a, it's a tease of how I will eventually die. Uh, maybe. Which is of diabetes. I'm just saying. Well, I don't care. I love junk food. First off, on St. Elsewhere, uh, the, you know, I, I wrote him back. I wrote Tim back and said, basically, the problem is with a lot of these films or a lot of these TV series that the first season is like a trial balloon and they float it out there. And if it doesn't sell well, they just they, they don't even bother with the rest of the seasons or they relegate them if the studio has a manufacturer on demand wing like Fox, you know, Fox Direct or whatever it's, what it is, uh, Fox Connect, Fox Connect or Warner Archives. Um, that, then they will just kind of dump those over there into the, into the manufacturer on demand wing. Um, St. Elsewhere may very well, that may happen to it as well. You know, uh, like Alice and Daktari became Warner Archive uh, MO, uh, manufacturer on demand MOD uh, titles. So um, we'll see. It just, it's, it's about, you know, whether or not it actually has an audience. So I, I hope so because it's a really good show. You know, and elsewhere was one of the first shows to kind of pioneer a demographic appeal. It never rated highly, but it rated high enough with the people who had lots of money. So it, you know, it was always near the bottom of the ratings, but it just pulled people who bought BMWs and Mercedes. Denzel Washington. Uh, but as far as the, sub- the, the subtitles, yeah, I, I think that's a really, really good idea. I've heard that complaint from other people who have uh, not just hearing loss, but families where there are like parents or grandparents who don't speak English well. And if they want to watch the movie together, they'll put the subtitles on. Um, so that you know the people who don't understand English well can at least read it, and they can, it helps them sort of follow along a little bit better. But um, they don't speak English goodly. Say thank right. you. But anyway, I, it's uh, it, it's unfortunate because it really doesn't cost that much to do it. They always have a subtitle track. That's part of a delivery element for a movie. You always have that track. So it's not like they actually would have to spend money to have somebody build the subtitles. It's part of the movie. It's there. They have it available. They just don't spend the money or the time to throw it in. And it doesn't cost anything. So I really – it's a good point. And uh, I would say complain to the distributors about it. I'll certainly raise it uh, when I have an opportunity. All right, Mark. We've got uh, time for – we're going to close out with Vox Box. We are? We're going to do it. Can I sing the song? Sing the song. You're ready for me to stop, but I'm not stopped yet. Stop that. Take your face, take your head off this base bar. It's Vox. Hello there, Mark and Big Daddy Wade. This is your pal from across the globe, Alexander Burlika. And I have a bit of an Oscar question here. So I was uh, browsing through the list of Best Picture winners, and I noticed that there are some interesting discrepancies between the nominees for the Oscar and the actual credited producers for the movies. Uh, two examples caught my attention. Crash and The Departed. Now, with Crash, there's about, I think, six or seven producers credited in the movie, including Don Cheadle and uh, Bob Yari. But the nominees and subsequent recipients of the Best Picture Oscar were uh, much fewer. 
There was uh, Paul Haggis, Bobby Moresco, and Kathy Schulman, I believe. And I seem to remember Bob Yari making a little noise about uh, him being excluded from the nomination and demanding to uh, be uh, reinstated and uh, getting the Oscar. And with The Departed, the credits list three producers, Brad Pitt, Brad Gray, and Graham King. But only King was nominated and uh, got the award. Which leads me to my question. Uh, what's the deal here? How are the nominees for Best Picture determined? Are they submitted by the studio or are they uh, selected by the Academy? If it is the latter, then uh, does the Academy have some kind of a qualification procedure for a producer to be suitable for a Best Picture nomination? And uh, do they have to uh, prove it somehow or uh, is it something else entirely? Because to be honest, I don't get it. Thanks in advance for the answer, and uh, once again, Wade, my big congratulations on your little bundle of joy. Oh, and uh, P.S. A while ago, Wade was having trouble pronouncing the last name of the director of uh, Elena. So here it is. For future, you can use the soundbite. The director of The Return, Exile, and Yelena is Andrei Zvyagintsev. Burlika out. Sweet. We always love getting uh, Vox boxes and uh, mail from Alexander. He always asks such interesting questions. And um, the yeah, that's uh, actually two different questions. One question is I'm never going to pronounce that woman's name correctly. You forget uh, or, it. Or, or, or his name, whatever. I'm, I'm his never. Name. Yeah, I'm never. I'm never going to pronounce it correctly so ever. The, so so the I'm first, just going to. So yeah. the first question is yeah. who submits Best Picture nominees, and the other question is when there are more than let's say three. I'm taking yes. off the answer. When there's more than three producers on a film. Yeah. Which producers actually wind up getting the nomination? Uh, rule 16, special rules for the Best Picture of the Year Award. The uh, individuals who shall be credited by uh, for Academy Award purposes must have screen credit of producer or produced by. Persons with screen credits of executive producer, co-producer, associate producer, line producer, produced in association with, or any other credit shall not receive nominations or Academy statuettes. The nominees will be those three or fewer producers who have performed the major portion of the producing functions. And it was two. At the time of crash, it was two. They upped this to three. Um, they were a little more flexible about it. Um, the uh, In determining the number of uh, producers eligible for the nomination, a bona fide team of not more than two people shall be considered to be a single producer if the two individuals have had an established producing partnership for at least the previous five years and as a producing team have produced a minimum of five theatrically released feature motion pictures during that time. The producer's branch executive committee will designate the qualifying producer nominees for each of the nominated pictures. The committee has a right in what it determines to be a rare and extraordinary circumstance to name any additional qualified producer as a nominee. In other words, they're sick and tired of people throwing around and selling producer credits just to get movies made. It's like, oh, I'm a producer because I, uh, I gave them $150,000. That doesn't make you a producer. So they actually will sit down and they'll call people in from a production and they will interview the cinematographer and the gaffer and the grip and the, you know, the actors. And they'll say, who really produced this movie? Like, did you see this guy on set or this woman on set? Were they, did you ever see them? Uh, what do you know about their involvement? And they will, they'll interview people. It'll be like a full-on IRS audit and they will determine Bob Yard didn't do jack with, with, with Crash. He may have helped get it made, but nobody saw him. He wasn't actually involved in producing the nuts and bolts producing of the movie. That's what Yari was mad about. He felt like they couldn't have done this movie without me, and then they cut me out of my Oscar. Kind of a cheeseball move on his part because he was never going to win that. It just made him look like, you know, Mr. Sour Grapes. He should have just said, I'm happy just to be involved. He should have been gracious about it, but instead he had to be like, a, like an awards hog. 
and that you know that's going to hurt him in the future. So uh, that's basically it. It's a complicated thing. The studio will submit a lot of names, but um, you know it's ultimately up to the Academy to make that determination. That's right. That's it. And not everybody's happy about that. Yeah. That's so. Uh, excellent question, Alexander. And with that, we Wait are... Wait a second. What, what, what? Yeah, second what? part of the question. When it comes to who submits the pictures... Studio. The studio does. Yeah, that's studio right. does. Yeah, studio submits those. But, you know, and that's why a lot of people get nominated for, you know, actor or actress when they should be in other categories supporting or vice versa. It's because the studio decides they uh, how, how to divvy that up. That is right. And sometimes it's very political because they know that somebody yeah. might has a better shot at a, at a supporting actor nomination... Because the other supporting actor nominees will be too strong. Entirely true. All right, and with that, we are done. Mark, how are we going? How are we signing out this week? There's only one way, Wade, we can it sign is. out this week. And until then, the balcony is closed.